back here at uh, Truth About Tech. I'm Tori Belici, and we have a very special guest. I'm very excited about it because I'm a huge uh, effects nerd, and uh, he is. Uh, he's agreed to join us. Ben Grossman, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? Thanks for inviting me. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, your, I mean, your career is insane. Like, you, you won an Oscar for Hugo. Um, you've you've worked on some of my favorite movies of all time. But uh, before we get into the VR aspect, yeah. uh, I just wanted to find out a little bit more about you. Um, you grew up in Alaska. Yeah, yeah. What, like, how do you how do you feel like that shaped who you are? Well, it, it's interesting and kind of a funny point. Like, I, I didn't really have a television growing up. So I grew up with a computer kind of in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And um, that was my little terminal to the world, you know, early days of the internet, green screen, uh, you know, black letters, like kind of old school. And, um, and so for me, like movies and television was always a, an intellectual thing. I had access to books, but that was like, ooh, like what are they doing in the big cities with all their fancy televisions and stuff? So uh, I, I always thought it was interesting. Uh, I got a job as a photographer uh, to pay for college up in Alaska. And then, um, and then one day somebody was like, Hey, you're, you're doing this photojournalism thing. I was working for the Associated Press and, and local newspaper. And, and they said, uh, be interested in, in getting you to operate a video camera, you know, come over to the TV stations. And I was like, yeah, I don't really know. Like, I don't really watch TV. I don't really even have a TV. So I got a job at a TV station as a news video camera person. They ended up putting me on the uh, local news as the weatherman. And uh, I still didn't have a TV. So so my, my whole world for television and film came actually way late uh, after I was already working in film and television. I don't know. That sounds like your first career in the film industry right there. Yeah, green screen. It yeah. was green screen. So it was, it was ironic that I was like- doing visual effects before you even know what you knew what visual effects was. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, what was, what, like, what, what kind of a kid were you? What were you like as a kid? Did you pay attention uh, in class? Were you- I was homeschooled, so there was no class. Um, oh. My parents were like, hey, here's a stack of books, read books. And then, um, yeah, so high school was basically the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I didn't make it all the way through, but I got most of the way through it. And um, yeah, just read a lot of books and, and I was an explorer, went on trips a lot, like to, like to, you know, learn hands-on. Uh, so yeah. lots of exploring around the state and around the country, learning things firsthand. And um, so like I don't, I can't. What was the population of your city? Oh, uh, about 800. And that's spread out over about a hundred square miles. So. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, not too many people. As a matter of fact, it's funny, like sometimes a tourist would, we were the, we were one of those towns where it's like, if you were trying to drive to Alaska from, you know, the lower 48 states or Canada, you'd come into our town and it was like the first time you'd seen a gas station in a few hundred miles. So people come in and they'd be like, you know, hey, what's going on here? Like, we're, we're really excited to be in Alaska. It's like, great. And they'd be like, hey, where's the nearest McDonald's? And you're like, oh yeah, just go, go straight down this road. Uh, till you get to the first stoplight and then turn left. It's right there. And they'd be like, okay, cool. And that's like 120 <laughs> miles away. So we didn't, we didn't even have a stoplight in our town. It was just like, there was a stop sign. We had yeah. one of those, yeah. but um, yeah, it was pretty chill. It gives you the ability to really focus, you know? And so you, you kind of learn a lot from reading a lot of books. And then I also had access to the internet um, when it was DARPAnet because my dad was in the military at the time. And so we had access to like Telnet and all kinds of cool BBSs and things like that. So I don't know, I got to see the world and, and, um, and just, but I learned it all very much in the physical world, a very hands-on kind of way. Right. So, which is weird now, yeah. like what you've chosen for a career, it's almost the opposite of what you grew up with. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a, in a sense, uh, the, the transition kind of happened like this in Alaska, I lived in a log cabin with no running water when I was in college. And so we'd have to haul water, and, you know, it was like you didn't really have much to do. And because you have to heat this cabin and it's like 55 degrees below zero outside, which is kind of on the chilly side, like the cabins would be very small. So imagine you're in a one room cabin that's probably the size of the room that you're in right now. Yeah. And and that's your sink and your bathroom is an outhouse outside and your bed and your couch and everything is right in this tiny little room because that's what you can afford to heat. Right. And um 
and but I had I had a computer. And so I at the time it was like you couldn't get access to stuff, but I'd find these wares sites in Japan and download pirated software and be like, what does this software do? And then you had nothing else to do but sit there and learn software. I was learning software that was completely in Japanese, just trying to figure out what it was. And I got a copy of got a pirated copy of this thing called Adobe After Effects. And I was like, huh, this is like a little animation tool. This is neat. I can start making little stuff. And then I started making little graphics for my little weather, my little weather program on the evening news. And then, uh, and then I just kind of got into that whole thing. So I was living in this world where it was like extremely physical, like middle of nowhere, but then, but then this window into a computer world. And then, yeah, one day, man, it got too cold and I, and my starter died on my car and I, you know, you gotta be a mechanic to live in Alaska. You gotta, you know, if your car dies on the side of the road, you could die seven minutes later. So my car died starter and I had a sob, which I knew that part was going to take eight weeks to order. And I just, I was like, ah, oh, I've had enough of this. I threw my shit in the trunk. Sob story. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. I have, I have many sob stories. <laughs> I threw all my shit in the trunk and I got somebody to help me push start the car. Once I got it running, I drove straight to San Francisco and I never turned it off. So I drove that car straight from Alaska to San Francisco and never turned it off once. And then uh, that was it, man. Got into the movie business. That's crazy. So, so like you didn't know when you were a kid, you weren't like, oh, I'm going to go to Hollywood and make movies. No, absolutely not. Uh, no, you I was more just evolved into, hey, I'm like this. This technology is cool. I'm liking it. Let's see. Keep going. Yeah, I like figuring stuff out, you know, and the movie business is kind of about that. And as a matter of fact, that's how I ended up. I mean, I, partially I ended up in visual effects because when I got down here, it's like, OK, I can edit. I was cameraman. You know, I thought maybe I could do some of these things too. I worked at a radio station, I did sound. Uh, so I thought maybe I could get into the movie business in any one of those ways. But they were all like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're this, you're non-union, you know, you gotta like, you gotta start from the beginning here. And I was like, well, I've been doing a bunch of stuff already. And then somebody was like, you know, I was working as a receptionist at a talent agency, just answering phone calls and routing things, you know, delivering mail. And um, the, this one agent came up to me and said, you know, you'd probably be good at this thing called visual effects. And I'm like, well, what's that? And they're like, nobody knows. It's like the, <laughs> it's like the black box of Hollywood. It's like yeah. by any means necessary, but those people are mysterious and dark and subtle and, and you'd probably be into it because it's lots of different stuff. So I like models and miniatures. I like blowing stuff up. I did a lot of that in Alaska. So, um, so yeah, I've, I've found, a, I found a toehold into the VFX business. <laughs> Oh yeah, dude. My, I, I live near a gravel pit. And if you're a kid who lives near a gravel pit, it, you're going to blow some shit up. Like that's, I, I got, I, I'm like almost missing fingers. I got scar tissue all over my hands from blowing things up. It's, it's a uh, good times. Well, it's funny. Cause when I was in, uh, I was going to film school at San Francisco state and this was early nineties. And there was, they were offering a class called film graphics. Mm. And it was like, none of us we were like, what the hell is film graphics? And it was one night a week. Ty Ellingson from uh, Industrial Light Magic, he would come in to class after work and just show us cool shit. So he was just like showing us, you know, kind of wire models that they were building from the abyss. And it was at the time that they were working on Jurassic Park. And it was just kind of this like whole world of like, what is, nobody really knew what visual effects were yet, you know? And, uh, and I remember just like, that was the moment of, oh shit, I got to go work at Industrial Light Magic. Like, that, oh, I don't yeah. know how I'm going to get there, but that's what I got to go do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, and that's, that was like, that's like the mecca of visual effects and, and so much cool stuff happened there because they have it all in one. And ILM originally evolved, you know, from the Kerner optical days where everything was very much animatronics, models, miniatures, very practical special effects. And so many other uh, visual effects houses after this sort of transition to digital were digital only, you know, they may yeah. know film scanning or recording, but generally speaking, they were digital only. And, and a lot of houses kind of lost that magic touch that had both things combined. And I was very fortunate in my career to start as an understudy for a couple of um, Academy award-winning visual effects supervisors who were very much in the world of model miniatures, practical effects and, who, and, who uh, Folker Engel and Mark Weigert, um, he did uh, Godzilla Independence Day okay. and yeah, worked with um, Matt Gratzner and Ian Hunter over at New Deal Studios a lot. So got really comfortable with like, hey, we'll do this as a model or a miniature, whereas most wow. other houses would be like, oh, it's got to be all digital. 
So, yeah, an appreciation for that. The Truth About Tech is brought to you by Turbine, the company that's linking the metaverse with the physical world using the Internet of Things. Everything from electric vehicles to smart cities to smart grids and digital twins. Turbine is the largest system of sensor data coming from public infrastructure and commercial sources, all highly curated for uses in areas as diverse as augmented reality, insurance calculations, or guiding delivery drones. Check it out at turbine.com. That's T-E-R-B-I-N-E.com. Turbine, we're taking the pulse of the earth. It's funny because I, when I was working on uh, episode one, two of Star Wars, we, they were transitioning. They were trying to say it was all digital. You know, it was like they, it was like this big push for everything is digital, but mm. we still built a ton of models and we had a bunch of practical sets. Um, what, like, in your opinion, how? Because because now I feel like it's almost all digital. Do yeah. You still you still like miss those practical days or do you feel like there's something practical versus digital? Oh, I, I, look, I definitely miss the, the digital days or sorry, I miss the practical days very much, but I understand why to a certain extent they've kind of gone away a little bit and well, they've gone away a lot, actually. Uh, very few movies these days reach for a, uh, a model or a miniature first and there are some there are some understandably good reasons for that you know it it it's you can't i still don't think that we beat the level of realism that you get with a model miniature right out of the gate but i understand the logistical hurdles and challenges and the additional expense of trying to say okay we're going to build all this part over here digital but or physical but it's not going to get us all the way there so then we got to do all this digital stuff and now it's happened that the price point of the digital stuff is actually almost cheaper if you don't give them the physical stuff first and to get the physical stuff you got to do a full shoot so you got camera crews and lights and sets and builds and all that stuff so now it's kind of like you're double paying and and the logistics and the timeline these days just just don't work out for most people but um and there are very few filmmakers who are still like most comfortable doing that you got a, you got a couple of filmmakers that are champions for it but then at a certain point once people started realizing well i could just let the digital team do most of that then that, that that's kind of where you ended up most of the places these days so i miss it there are advantages to it i also understand as a person who used to have to integrate all those things why it why it sort of went away but I don't know. For me, the 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 bummer is that when we made that transition into all digital, it it created this divide. You know, it used to be a film crew was all on the movie set, you know, together, and they would see the whole movie and all the pieces and put it all together and make the magic, and then they'd go into post production really just to see what did we get, yeah. and now how do we how do we arrange it. And then we put the sound on it and we color correct it and we get it out of there. But the film set had everybody there at the same time. And so that creativity and collaboration was great. When digital came out and we stopped even doing on-set visual effects that much, we fractured into two totally different teams of people. There's the digital people in post-production and there's the physical people in production. And to be honest with you, as a person who's one of the few people in the movie business whose job it is to cross both of those, there's such little communication between those two teams of people. You got thousands of artists in the visual effects department, and then you got hundreds or maybe potentially thousands of people in practical effects. And there's just only like, yeah, four people who go from this one to this one. Three to two. Yeah. And so what happens is you end up trying to make one movie out of two totally different groups of people. And they all act like, you know, look, when they do the press releases and they do the interviews later, they're like, oh, yeah, we were all, you know, under the vision of the production designer and the director. And it's like, yeah, but what? Via email, via yeah. Zoom call, like, <laughs> right. like, like for for sometimes two years, like we'd be on set for less than a year. And then for two years, we'd be in post-production in our own little world. And then you wonder why movies look so fragmented and disjointed when you go see them in a theater. You're like, well, this all isn't glued together. And you're like, well, yeah, this is what happens when that shot gets created in January and this shot gets created in 
February two years later, and that shot gets created in January again. It's a little incoherent. This shot got finished in the last three days just to get it into the movie. Oh, dude. Yeah, like, you know what that, uh, you mentioned the movie Hugo, uh, which was very fortunate to win an Academy Award. I'm still not sure how. And uh, and that first opening shot of the movie that kind of comes down and like flies through the train station and goes up into the kid's eye. We only ever rendered that shot once. It took us a year and a half to render that shot. And Martin Scorsese was like making jokes in newspapers, scaring the crap out of the visual effects artists because like he had a director's guild screening in Hollywood and everyone was there. James Cameron was there. Uh And I I ran in having not slept in 58 hours with my laptop and and we gave him the DCP to play in the the screening room. And we had to tell him, hey, the opening shot's not done yet. And he's presenting, Martin Scorsese is presenting his movie to all of his you know, director cohorts like freaking yeah. Lucas and Spielberg and everybody. And I'm oh, like, sorry, man, I didn't get the first shot in, but I have it here on my laptop. He actually made me show the shot to James Cameron on my laptop and then say, now go watch the rest of the movie in the screening room with like a thousand people. It was nuts. So stuff comes in hot and comes in last minute. And to be honest with you, what I always hated about that process was I saw this movie, Wag the Dog. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. Okay. In that, in that movie, they're faking a war in Albania. Right. And so they, they bring the film crew and they go into a green screen stage and they're all in a control room and they just start pressing buttons and visual effects are happening in real time on the screen. And I saw that they got like Claire Danes is in there, like a little, like a little refugee girl running across a bridge and they give her a bag of chips and then they turn it into a kitten. I saw that before I got into the visual effects business. And so I thought that that's how visual effects worked. So I was like, I was like, Oh, this is going to be so great. And so, a couple of years into working in visual effects, I'm like, when am I going to get to f- go into that room where they have all the buttons that they press that turn the, the cats into the, the live effect? Yeah, well, it was a lie. I was totally lied to, and so yeah. that's not how visual effects works at all. It takes like it takes years. So yeah. that's why now I'm so excited that we're we're going, we're kind of going through a new revolution in visual effects, where the intersection of the games industry yeah. and the and the visual effects movie business means that that technology can now take those two different teams, the physical onset people and the digital people who used to come, you know, years later and put them all in the same place at the same time again. So right. now we can start making movies where you actually know what the hell's going on instead of just looking at a green screen and being like, well, I guess that's going to be beautiful someday, but right now it's really ugly. Yeah, totally. And that's, I mean, that's gotta be so much easier for the actors because now they're not acting, you know, to a tennis ball. They're acting to something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, like Ben, Sir Ben Kingsley one time walked up to me on set, scared the shit out of me, because of <laughs> course he's he's Sir Ben, and uh, and we were at the Sorbonne in Paris, you know, beautiful set, like extravagant location, and it's for the movie Hugo, and he's you know playing Georges Maillet, and he's going to be up there, and and unfortunately we're in this beautiful location, but because they wanted to change all the stuff in the background, I basically was like, all right, well, it's just a giant green screen. So we flew all the way to Paris to shoot on a green screen. So oh, I put these tracking marks up and, and Sir Ben Kingsley comes up to me and, and he's very serious. And he like leans right in and he says, these tracking marks, what do they mean? And I was like, well, I, I use them in the computer to tell me how the camera's moving. He's like, no, but what do they mean to me as an actor? Do I respond to them? Like, what are they? And I was like, what's my motivation to these? Like, well, well, you could if you wanted to, but I, but I think audiences would probably be confused. I guess I could just make them into a door or something like that. And he's just like, okay, so they have no meaning. And I was like, no, Sir Ben, they're just tracking marks for tracking into the computer. He's like, okay, I just need to know what to react to. And it's like actors have no idea what's going on in there. And I understand. It's like, man, you're, you're not even seeing half the picture because you're looking at the camera, which is just a bunch of people in junk. And then behind you is just a bunch of green. You're on your own, kid. Sorry. Yeah, you know, and that brings up a good point because I mean, you've worked with a lot of amazing directors like John Favreau, Martin Scorsese, Michael Mann, um, and then uh, Robert Rodriguez, right? You worked on Sin City. So yeah, yeah. You have directors because I know like George Lucas is very much about digital, and it's like the more digital, the better. Like, we don't need to build sets. But Scorsese is the exact opposite. But what was it like working with him on Hugo where? Here's somebody who's all about grit, reality, and he was not a big fan of digital sets and you know digital digital technology. What was that like working with him on Hugo? 
Well, to be honest with you, uh, that was really kind of my first area of getting into this new technique called virtual production, which is at that time, because it was so long ago, virtual production was just this idea that we would somehow get the computer graphics into the director's monitor while he was shooting the live action plate. Because it used to just be, oh, Marty, don't worry, we're going to replace all the green screen later. And here's a picture on my phone or my laptop that shows you what we're going to replace it with. Right. But for him to stay inside the 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 world of the of the film, we needed to start implementing some of the earliest versions of camera tracking and live compositing. So I could make a Photoshop file on my laptop, feed the video signal to the monitor, and then have camera tracking mechanical encoders on the train the crane and the and the O'Connor heads and the jib arms and all that kind of stuff. So that when all that stuff moved, there was a piece of software that would translate that into whatever artwork we were showing. So actually that was one of the first movies where Marty would sit down in his chair and he would actually see no green screen. Wow. And, and so we almost never let him see a green screen except on the set, but yeah. through the director's monitor, he always saw some approximation of what that shot was going to be. And that was one of the first times I think we did that for an entire movie and, and got away with it. And it, and it helped teach us that there were a lot of new advancements in technology we needed to make if we were going to start doing that on a regular basis. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how it's evolved since then. And then flash forward to a few years ago and, you know, Marty's team called and they were like, oh man, we're in trouble. We got a project we need to do. And we have almost no time. We got five weeks to shoot and it's supposed to take place in like three different countries. And, and it's, and it's De Niro, DiCaprio, Scorsese and Brad Pitt all in the same thing. And they were like, and we can barely get these people into the same place at the same time. How are we going to do this? We have less than two months to deliver the whole short film. It was a short film. And so we built a green room in New York with a mirrored floor. And then we had taken an advanced virtual production tracking techniques and the computer graphics on the stuff so that when they were shooting all this, they were just in a green room with a mirrored floor. Yeah. But through the camera, they were in all these other countries and all these other sets and all these other locations. And so they could actually see it. We'd go hand him an iPad after each take and he could look at it and see himself composited into the shots in real time. So it was like the first time where it actually started to work like that Wag the Dog movie that I saw when I was a kid. Oh, how and, um, that's awesome. Yeah. And now then flash forward a couple more years after that. And we're in virtual reality headsets with Jon Favreau shooting The Lion King, which was totally crazy. And um, and then, you know, right thing after that is Mandalorian ILM yeah. and and right. Epic Games and a bunch of great people put together. You know, that was an evolution of John loving the idea of shooting the Lion King in VR. Yeah. Which was a consequence maybe of the Jungle Book. The technology, though, the the yeah. is back the Mandalorian, because to me, it's it. Uh, I think it's genius because it's it kind of harkens back to rear projection. Yeah. Kind of what James Cameron was doing, you know, in all his movies where it was like he had rear projection and then the actors in the foreground performing. And it was, you know, now you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. It's like rear projector. But at the time it was like, whoa, that's amazing. So explain that technology. So, okay. Jungle Book. Jungle Book is a movie where 95% of any frame is is computer generated, but there's a boy and the boy needs to feel like he's in the environment, seeing the animals and talking. This is a great problem study because on that set, it was just a constant migraine because what are you looking at? You're looking at a kid running around on a bunch of green screen stuff. And then you have to imagine what is that green screen stuff? Oh, that's a tree limb. This is a log. That's a bush. This is a hill. That's a cliff. Like you have to imagine it all. Yeah. So you're desperately, desperately trying to figure out what's going on in any shot. Cause basically you're trying to shoot a movie, but you're really just shooting little pieces. And now imagine if you were to like decide the framing and the composition and the choreography of an entire movie based on looking at the shot through a microscope, right. you're only looking at a piece of it. It's incoherent. So after that, Jungle Book experience, John was like, we need to do something different because we want to do the Lion King, but we can't do the Lion King the same way we did just did Jungle Book. It would just, it would, it would blow everyone's minds and it would hurt so much. And we said, okay, what if we throw out all the technology we were using before and we just build the movie inside of a video game and we make a video game about making a movie and we can build the entire world of the Lion King inside the video game. And then 
he's like, well, I need, it needs to be hands-on. It needs to be tactical. I need to use traditional film crews. It needs to have the language of cinema. It needs to have the texture of all that stuff. And it was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Here's what we'll do. We'll connect the virtual equipment inside the virtual movie with the physical equipment that your film crews always used. So we're going to go in and encode these O'Connor heads, dolly tracks, put laser tracking systems onto the camera cranes and things like that. And then we're going to put the film crew into the movie with virtual reality. Now, when they put that headset on, they see their film equipment in front of them and they can reach out and touch it. So they're seeing equipment that they know how to use. And then we wrote software interfaces so that basically it was just like being on a physical movie set, but, but with um, superpowers, like you could, you could fly and you could (laughs) teleport. And, and sometimes if you had like a 10,000 pound piece of equipment, you could just like pick it up with your finger and move it over there and set it down. And we wrote interfaces into Grip Union must love that. (laughs) Oh dude. But, but what was funny is that the grips got to work in the movie. Yeah. No, it took them a minute to figure out. They're like, hang on a second. So I'm pushing this dolly and that dolly is pushing something in the world. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to explain anything. You just put the VR headset on. So they put the VR headset on. They're like, whoa. Wow. And then That's and now, they, now they're like, oh, I'm pushing a dolly. And then I was like, now I'm going to really warp your brain. You ready for this? Have you ever wanted to be 100 feet tall? And he's like, yeah. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to push a dolly being a 100 foot tall giant? And he's like, totally. So I was like, okay, I'm going to scale you up. And he grabs the controllers and he goes, and he like shrinks the whole world so that now he's this giant walking around the set. So it was hilarious because in VR, you see all the other crew members walking around the set, doing stuff, moving cameras, playing, you know, lions and stuff. And then you got this dolly, you look up and there's like a dolly grip up there with a giant head. And he's just there to like push the, you know, push the camera along the track. So, so after that, you know, everybody had a great time on Lion King. And John said, okay, this is great. I'm going to do this new thing for Star Wars universe. And, but it's going to have real actors in it. So now we're back to the Jungle Book problem, which is I have a real element. How do we do this same fun vibe that we had on Lion King, but with real actors? And it was like, well, either you volumetrically capture the real actors' performances and put them into the VR volume and then shoot it, which requires capturing performance, then shooting movie, or you just make the entire stage into a VR headset. And it was like, well, what does that look like? And it was like, well, it looks like a holodeck from Star Trek. You just cover all the walls and panels. And then you basically can't really tell where you are because whatever we put on the walls is where you are. And and there was definitely a lot of people on that process who were like, yeah, that's never going to work. And it was like, yeah, but is it? Because I'm pretty sure. And there had been enough tests early on with people, you know, doing little examples of this in small context but basically just like you said tori it was like going back to intravision like rear screen projection front screen projection these are techniques from the 40s and earlier so it was just like that but you know technologically it was a little harder (laughs) and if you actually of course but but you're creating the same feeling where you walk onto set and now it's not a green screen that you have to imagine you're going yeah you walk into the set and it's you're in that environment. That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And now what's amazing is that like, you know, as an actor, you get on the set and you're just like, holy crap, I'm, I'm, I know where I am. I know where things are. I know where the monsters are. I know where the spaceships are. I know I can see everything. And you just, you feel a little bit more like it's a hybrid between a movie set and a theatrical performance because a theater has a stage, you know? It's just missing the audience. And so there's a fusion of that that's going on that's kind of cool. And then um, the other thing is, is that this is really just the first incarnation of this. I mean, basically we're using LED panels that for all intents and purposes are just like a Vegas billboard. Yeah. But, but there are people now working on the next generations of these LED panels and they're using light field display technology, which means that, you know, right now, when I put up an LED panel and I want to shoot it with a camera, I have to sync the camera to the refresh rate of the LED screen, but I also have to have camera tracking systems so that when that camera moves, what's being rendered on the screen moves with the appropriate parallax. Otherwise it's just a flat painted wall. It needs to be a full 3d environment. So there that's a problem right now. 
And I also couldn't shoot a stereo movie, for example, because in a stereo movie, you would see all the real things are 3D and then everything on the LED wall is flat. Right. But there are new light field displays being invented. And there were some press releases that just came out in the last couple of days about the next generations of them that will essentially allow you to have an auto stereoscopic view from any perspective of reality so that if you were to walk towards it, you'd have a hard time knowing where the screen actually is and you might walk right into it <laughs> because you can't, because your brain can't see it. Your, your left and right eye are getting two different images from this volumetric uh, light field display. Mm-hmm. And so once we build a stage out of that, we're going to start really freaking some people out. Yeah. You're just going to be walking into walls. Yeah, no, it's bonkers. I mean, the stuff, the stuff is so real that it's effectively like one of those, you know, a really high quality hollow lens, but, but on the walls around you. Right. And um, I mean, then, you know, we got a lot of problems we still have to pass, like, which is, you know, bandwidth right now to drive all these led walls is already straining all the infrastructure that we have. If you start putting light field displays on walls, then you're going to, you know, you're going to be into a whole new world of uh, realism and detail that has to be built out. And it's kind of bonkers, actually. Like right now, there's this gold rush where hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these LED stages are being built all around the world. Really? And the funny thing is, is that, oh, yeah, like, so like this it's, is all, like this it's is insane. What you guys did with Jungle Book and Mandalorian. I mean, certainly can't take, you know, that much credit, but um, but the industry collectively is but I feel like that was the first time I heard of it was mostly from uh, when the Mandalorian came out and I saw sure. uh, on set photos and I was like, wait a minute, that's not a real background. Like that's a digital background. It, it blew my mind. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so, I mean, that that's where I really think the idea kind of tipped over into the mainstream. It had been used in quite a few places and, and, and notably in quite a few movies like um, Oblivion. Uh, had a bunch of scenes uh, directed by Joseph Kaczynski had a bunch of scenes that had um, entire sets floating up in the clouds, but they were surrounded by massive wrapped up rear projection screens. And it basically had the same exact effect. Um, I think the led technology made it a little bit more approachable for a lot of people. It made it a little bit more robust. So you didn't have to have like such a purpose built context, like you could do the camera tracking and stuff. So like right now shit's on fire. And, and there are people building these things in, you know, all the most random places of the world. And the problem that we have right now is that there are not enough people who know how to run them and fill them with content because it requires transitioning a lot of visual effects artists into games technology. And even though it seems like those should be almost identical, they're not. Yeah. And, and if you think about the film business, visual effects artists were always going for quality Right. Like you had to hit the quality mark. It didn't matter if it took 120 hours per frame to render. That didn't matter. You just had to hit that quality mark. But in video games, you don't have a quality mark. You have how much quality can you get in, you know, five milliseconds. So video games were anchored at time. The movie business was anchored at quality. Those two things are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And so we're trying to still bring everybody to meet in the middle. And in the next couple of years, that's going to be a pretty big revolution. Um, but for me, and this is where I kind of left the movie business. I'm still working in it a little bit, but. Um, that's, that's, I, was, I was curious to see how you transitioned from the film industry. And now you're now more in the tech industry, this yeah. virtual reality and your company, uh, Magnopus, like how, yeah. like how, how did that transition come about where you're like, okay, we need to, we need to start this other thing. Yeah. I was working on a Star Trek movie as, as any good, you know, origin story is working on Star Trek with JJ Abrams, who is a great filmmaker and, and a lovely human being. And, and there were these just amazing sets and amazing worlds that we were building in the computer and the visual effects artists were doing such a phenomenal job. And we were building Kronos and we were just looking at all these crazy places. And so I spent, you know, a couple of years basically living inside this world we were creating so that it's like, oh, I know what's around that corner. I know what's over here. I know what's there. And let's look at this and let's look at that. And then I went and saw the movie in theaters and I went, I went, uh, that's it. Like we, like that, we, 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 built, we built all that stuff. We built San Francisco in the future. We built a whole planet full of Klingons. We built all this stuff. And that's all we saw through the little through the little rectangle. Yeah. And I kind of got bummed out. 
and I was like, man. But I mean, isn't that true in any film? Like anything yeah. on, you're like, yeah. you build this amazing set or you build all this stuff. And then the shot is like two seconds yeah. long. And you're like, Wait, that was what we spent months yeah. working on? And it's- so, But it wasn't just the fact that, you know, all of my years disappeared in moments. It was <laughs> that It was that I was in a world that no one else would ever get to go to. And uh -huh. I went, if yeah. we spent all this time building that world, what if instead of putting the audience in the theater, we put the audience inside the screen and then the audience, what would it be like if the audience was inside the movie? What if they were actors? What if they were the director? What if it wasn't a movie? What if it was just, we built this world and it was full of stories and they could go explore whatever they wanted. And then you could have a movie that was simultaneously R rated and G rated. You know, you could be like, you'd go in as a family and the parents would have, you know, have a storyline that was, you know, interesting to them and the kids would have a storyline that's interesting to them and you could have all these different it could be a rom-com or it could be an action film but it could all be part of the same story because that's how real life is right and so and so that's a bunch like, of us were kind of like hey man that's like, that's like Westworld, real Westworld stuff yeah and then when Westworld came out i was like god damn it this is exactly what we need to be doing and so um and so it's funny but yeah that's basically what it that's basically what it's about and so we had that idea and then, you know, Lion King was actually a step towards that. It was like, well, before we put the audience inside the movie, why don't we put the film crew inside the movie? And that worked out pretty well. So I was like, all right, let's just keep making progress on this. And now if you're going to make a movie that you're going to put the audience inside, then you need to start finding a way to use the same technology to make the movie for theaters, because that's a billion dollar thing that people don't want to let go of. Right. into the same technology that people could take into their homes, put into their glasses or, you know, whatever. And so that's basically what this revolution is about right now. Virtual production right now serves to, to help the filmmakers make a better movie, but really it's a Trojan horse because once most of the movie gets made with this technology, well, now you can put the audience inside of it. Then we are add uh, artificial intelligence to make characters have conversational AI um, and voice synthesis and then you start adding in all these layers and pretty soon, boom, it's a uh, Westworld. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So how do you yeah. see that working? Like as that technology, are you like, do you picture that as virtual goggles that you would wear or is it these worlds that we're, you're talking about with LEDs so, so you're actually in a physical realm? Why does it have to be either or? Like if you think I, about when you- I, I'm just curious, like, because you're you're probably closer to this than anybody else what do you see as something that is a viable thing that could happen in the near future well uh you got to build a bridge right there's a big chasm it's kind of like when the adoption of the internet first came out you got to build a bridge for people to get from the old continent that they're on to the new continent that we're creating and so that means that right now everybody's pretty acutely aware that you can't just say, oh, it's virtual reality. You have to wear a headset. Right. You know, you, 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 you have to say, hmm, that doesn't really work for everybody. And there's a lot of reasons why that's not a great idea. So why don't we build these worlds and then we'll make them compatible with everybody's devices. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be a phone. It could be a tablet. It could be a laptop. It could be an Xbox or a PlayStation. It could be uh, virtual reality glasses or augmented reality glasses let them as much as possible all play in the same space. And then over time, what will happen is people who are having kind of a crappy experience on a mobile phone will be like, man, I love this world I'm in, but I sure wish that I was in it. And then they'll have a migration path towards those newer and more advanced versions of technology. What's important is that it is spatial. It is. Um, and, and, and this is kind of like, this sort of starts to get into metaverse. So, the internet was invented and what do we have? Basically, we didn't know what to do. So we said, fuck it, we'll make it a bunch of newspapers. So the internet today that we all use yeah, right. is a newspaper. Yeah, right. And the only difference between the internet today and the newspapers of the like early 1800s is that uh, the pictures move and you can click on words and they will take you to other pages. Yeah. And that's basically the internet for most of the world. So. What we have to do is we have to transition. So we're still reading a book effectively. We have to start getting people into spaces. So if the internet was a series of connected pages, the metaverse is a series of connected spaces.
And now the cool thing about spaces is uh, scientists and psychologists and researchers will tell us that the human brain is wired for spaces. Yeah. Like we're not wired for flat information. 2D information causes the brain to just go. Right. I mean, that's like, think back to you the first time you used a VR headset. What, what was your experience? Oh, man. Uh, well, I was working on, a, on an international space station replica with NASA because we wanted to get an overview effect from space in VR. And, and so those first experiences were prototyping and developing that on beta versions of the, uh, of the Oculus. And so, I mean, being in space was just like, I'm floating. You know, yeah. my body starts to feel like I'm experiencing what I'm seeing and I'm someplace I could never go. Like, I'm sorry, yeah. but it's just very unlikely I'm getting to the International Space Station. So, so yeah, that was a huge, like mind blowing opportunity. And, and it kind of harkened back to um, what researchers tell us, and, you know, those people who are like super memorizing stuff, they can like memorize, exactly. you know, Savant. Yeah, exactly. 10,000 digits of pi and whatever. Like yeah. I was watching one of those how they do it videos and they're like, oh, well, it's all about using the brain's spatial memory capabilities. So if you just try to remember a sheet full of numbers, you'll never get anywhere. But if you take a journey through your household or your childhood home and you just place the numbers on objects in the house, then your brain just writes all that information down. So then you just walk through the house and repeat all the numbers back. Yeah. And the brain works that way. So if we're just looking at two-dimensional information, then the rest of the brain that's good at that stuff is just doing nothing. If we can get into these connected spaces, oh man, like suddenly people don't forget things and they have a much more tactile or, or intellectual experience. And, and I think it's going to help civilization. I'm not saying everybody needs to wear a VR headset, yeah, you know, but just even, even, uh, even a three-dimensional game and a two-dimensional interface, mm -hmm. even that lights up the brain more than just a 2D side-scroller game. Yeah. So we're going to get into a position pretty, pretty soon where people who have been living in two worlds, kind of like the Matrix, it's like you've been living two lives. We're going to bring those two lives back together again. And then you're going to have the ability to shift between the physical world and the digital world based on your needs, your capabilities, your context, whatever. Yeah. So it's going to be dope. It's going to be dope. What do you see that looking like in the real world, like in, in our daily lives? Because right now we're all we're talking about entertainment and but you know what what do you see how do you see this technology kind of transforming just normal daily life yeah yeah well um vr went through a a, a peak of you know expectations and then a, it crashed in you know 2018 when everybody kind of realized like hmm, it's not quite exactly what i want and now it's slowly crawling back up and we're really just kind of waiting for AR glasses to come out in a form factor that people stop bitching about. You know, I mean, a lot of people are, for some reason, became very precious about putting four ounces on their head. And so, um, so, so we're waiting for these lightweight AR glasses that give people a physical world foundation and then the computer graphics on the, on the top of it to make it a little bit more approachable for the common person. The, um, today, what we're seeing is uh, enterprise adoption, training, um, you know, education around things where it's like, hey, we need to train people to do something that normally would cost us millions of dollars, but we can do it in virtual reality and find that their retention of education is really high. Um, taking as a force multiplier for sort of uh, enabling worldwide access to people who don't have the means to travel, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm from a small town. A lot of people in that small town still live there from when I lived there and they haven't traveled. They haven't seen the world. You travel, you see the world, you learn new stuff. You open your mind up to new possibilities. It, it just, it's like fertilizer for the brain and just grow. But if you're stuck in that same little small town and maybe you don't have the ability to travel around the world, well, virtual reality offers you that opportunity. And so, you know, in, in medicine and, and a lot of things like that. So, those are the sort of foundational, not sexy, but transformative things. Yeah. As we start to get into part of the reason that it hasn't really kicked off yet is because there just isn't platforms to support these metaverse style experiences yet. No one's really built one. So everything was a one-off. Like we did a project with Pixar to say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could put kids inside of a Pixar movie? They agreed. Um, and so we did one and everybody loved it, but it was a one-off. It's like, well, we just built this one thing and we put it out there and it's not like, 
it's not all, it's not like the internet where it just goes forever and you can connect to other things and explore new stuff. So once that happens, I think we're going to, we're going to unlock the doors a little bit for people to get into it and, um, and then start having some real fun. But I think practical applications in, in uh, everyday life really just depend on which part of the spectrum you need to be on. Is your digital world better for that thing or is your physical world better for that thing? And let's just make sure that you have the best unified experience between the two. This podcast is brought to you by Turbine, the company that's linking the physical and digital worlds using the internet of things. Turbine is the largest system of sensor data from around the world, powering everything from electric vehicles to improved air quality and self-driving big rigs. Check it out at turbine.com. That's T-E-R-B-I-N-E.com. Turbine, we're taking the pulse of the earth. What inspires you or what, 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 how do you stay inspired as a creator? Oof. It's, it's tough because I, I, I'm torn between two worlds on this one. I, I mean, I feel like I always am. I get anxiety, which is really weird. It comes out of nowhere. And I normally, it's like, I'm totally confident speaking to 6,000 people or getting yelled at by Martin Scorsese or any of this kind of like crazy stuff that would normally give people anxiety. I'm cool as a cucumber. I get anxiety for some reason going on the internet and looking at social media of things other people are doing because I, I get this feeling like, oh no, everybody else is doing it. And, and, and they're doing it right or they're doing it wrong or they're doing it. It's just, I don't know. I find it very stressful for some reason. And so I actually don't spend a lot of time looking at what other people are doing because it, I feel like sometimes it distracts me from the things that are the people that I'm working with hands-on on a project. And I, I get inspired by, I hate to say this, but uh, white papers, white papers where a bunch of researchers in the world have like done some deep dive into something and they've cracked some nut that's really hard to, for people to understand. And I just read the white papers over and over and over. And I'm like, huh, I'll bet you if you took this thing and you plugged it into that thing, and then you took this white paper and hooked it up to that white paper and this white paper, then you'd have this thing that the world needs. And so to be honest with you, uh, it's white papers, these little research things that <laughs> university is, researchers use. the answer I was expecting. <laughs> no, I, and you wouldn't, I wouldn't think that either because you would think that I'd be like out there, you know, I don't know, hugging trees or something. And, and, and it really just comes down to like the research that researchers do yeah. is so foundational to what we're trying to unlock. I mean, whether it's deep fakes or neural networks and all these other things, and you just start thinking about like, they're like new Lego blocks that, you, that you're about to get your hands on and you just wanna start plugging them into new things. That's really what inspires me to get excited is what, what people are doing in the research community that, um, that is gonna make the, the future pretty awesome. That's cool. Um, VR in your personal life. Or do you, what are you, or what are you using it for? Um, babysitting my daughter. Ah, that's cute. She's, I got a, I have a, I have a 10 year old. Oh, yeah. No, she's, um, like, she just went to, she just went to her second Billie Eilish concert in VR. And, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. It is actually pretty funny to like, I mean, in my personal life, you know, that's kind of what I, what I've been using it for is like a little bit of traveling the world and getting a little bit of exercise and beat saber and things like that. I'm, um, yeah, it's funny. It's like, as much as I'm working on it, I don't use it as much as you would think that I would um, because you're so focused on what you're building that sometimes you get distracted. It's kind of like, it's kind of weird. It's like when you're making movies, you don't necessarily watch a lot of other people's movies because you start to get contaminated and then you become an audience member instead of a, instead of a, a you know, a storyteller or a filmmaker or whatever. And, um, but yeah, I mean, like a, a big thing that we're, that we're doing right now, and this is kind of a world's first, we've been working on this for four years, the world fairs, you remember them? Yep. Like 1800s, we used to have them every, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the world fairs used to be these places where people made big announcements because that was when the whole world came together to exchange ideas. And then the internet got invented and it kind of fizzled a little bit. Then it became about sort of a cultural or a culinary exposition, you know, like just a big conference. Well, in Dubai this year, uh, the expo is Expo 2020 Dubai. It's the first uh, expo that's being held in the Middle East or in a Muslim country. So it's a really interesting intersection between worlds. Wow. And they really wanted to, uh, to have a message of sort of unity and creating a positive future. 
And so about four years ago, we started talking to him and said, you know, this could be the opportunity to create one of the world's biggest digital twins that's a foundation for the metaverse and then make it so that people could go to the World's Fair without having to travel across the world. That's and awesome. so they had the they had the the passion to sort of let us pursue that project. And so we got a team of a bunch of really cool people together and we've been building a one-to-one scale digital twin of this four kilometer site that they built with 200 crazy buildings designed by all the world's best architects. And then we filled it with content and characters and, and in narratives and points of interest and stuff. And so now we're going to be releasing a series of apps as part of the next world's fair so that people can essentially play uh, like a Fortnite version of the world's fair. And it's synchronized with people who are actually at the world's fair. So you can be at the world's fair, looking at objects through augmented reality on your phone, and you can see the avatars of other people who are on the other side of the world playing the world fair on their phones. That's so crazy. Yeah, it's a little nuts. And, and it's super with, with COVID, you know, everybody, you know, it's like it, people who don't want to go to these big gatherings can still go and experience it in a different way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, um, we, we, we built a digital twin of our office and we have employees who work here in the physical office and you can hold up your phone and you can look through the lens and see your coworkers virtually remote. Oh, that is creepy. You're like somebody's standing over your shoulder. How long have you been there? I mean, you can do group meeting. I mean, you can't like spy on people like that. It'd be pretty obvious, but it is kind of cool to like say, hey everybody, let's get in this room and talk this out. And then you start to subtly forget who's actually there and who's remotely there once your brain adapts to that world, it's like a little, it's a little taste of what's to come. And it's super, it's super exciting. I like it. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, It was a pleasure to meet you. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of yours, Ben. And uh, man, it is an honor to be on your show. Like, and, and your, your history and your reputation, where you've worked, what you've done. I was like, oh man, this is going to be such a treat. 